Hello, hello! Welcome to another episode of Just Two Dudes Reading Theory. I'm Chris. I am Preston. And uh, this week, in a lovely choice from Preston, we are reading an essay by Slavoj Žižek called The Prospects of Radical Politics Today. And Preston, what was one point that he made that you liked? So, I really enjoyed that he talks about how the right and left, often how they're trade media is kind of how I read it, um, has almost become a bit of a fashion show. A bit of a Lacan's prayer wheel, if you, if you will. Yeah. It's, uh, I am appearing to, uh, do these things and I'm outspoken about how important it is, but I'll only allow protest as far as it doesn't upset the comforts created by capitalism for me. So he sort of says that we, we are the forces that be encourage protest because in a certain sense, they're part yes. of the capitalist machine, but only as such as they don't go so far as to cause actual change. Yes. As long as it doesn't, you know, affect my paycheck you keep doing that protest. Yeah, and I it's, was... it's become a part of the capitalist machine, I think he kind of argues. Like, the the protest has become a part of it rather than a real argument to it. And especially yeah. the quick and aggressive call to action, which, this is not the first time we've read Zizek and seen the, uh... Hey, maybe we hold off for a minute... The, uh, as you put it, the uh, waiting for the aliens to come kind of mindset. Yeah, so there's um, there's a critique of Zizek that comes from Ernesto Laclau, which says that Zizek is a philosopher of waiting for the UFOs to arrive, which is also a great song um, from this from the 80s by Graham Parker. But or I think it's Graham Parker, um, which is the idea that don't act think there's even a youtube video which is like five minutes long that gj puts out called like don't act think and i can give some credit to that to a point mm -hmm. like and especially with um how quick people are to jump into the political correctness uh arena before really getting any information i can definitely see where he's coming from yeah, well, also, think about it this way. Um, how quick was it after 2012, and even before, for the LGBT flag to become commodified? Right? Like, on any oh. product, you just see, like, oh, try our new gay lotion, or whatever, where it was like, oh, oh we're going to accept... the Target in Pride season oh, is... Oh, my gosh. ...the perfect example of that. It's literally become, like a new season for them yeah. to make money. Yeah, it's a new thing. So it's like, well, well, we're all here in solidarity with you as long as you're peacefully protesting in the streets, as long as you don't cross a certain line. And that line that's going to be crossed is... Our bottom line. <laughs> Our bottom line. Exactly. And I think that, like, that's fine. I think a lot of theorists bring up the point that Zizek's making. You know, he's not alone in this idea that capitalism works in the idea that it can assume 
indigenous cultural values. It can assume a positivity of minority cultures, of LGBT culture. It can kind of, it can market to whoever it wants to market to. Whereas, like, it's, it's similar to, it's a little different, but it's similar to Noam Chomsky's idea of manufactured consent, which is a consent that is in a sense not freely given, but that you've been brought up to believe is consent in a certain sense. Oh. And like, I think that for Zizek, like another thing that's even stronger, I think in this essay, I think that point is there for sure. But like you, you can go out and protest, but as soon as you do something actually meaningful, forces will come to stop you. Yeah. <laughs> right. But the other point, which, um, comes from he references Habermas which is the idea of the reduction of freedom is presented to us as the arrival of new freedoms Ooh. and I, I think about that a lot with like um, this is again only tangentially related but I think it's still there of the idea that like you want to live in Florida okay but you don't want to live in like a one of quote unquote those neighborhoods so you set up a gated community where you're safe but what you wind up having is a sort of weird world of segregated communities based on age and wealth where certain people can't go certain places and other people can't like don't want to leave Ooh. their gated community and you wind up having a sort of enclosure scenario like florida's a lot like that actually like having been to certain areas where it's like oh this is the purchasing area it's the mall this is this zone and then there's another zone, which is, like, the wealthy living area. But there isn't just, like, space. Like, you just go out, and I'm like, I'm going to go on a walk. And you don't, like, have the freedom, I don't think, to just, like, wander around neighborhoods or, like, to just go out. You, you know, there's all these no-go zones or, you know, you have to have the keypad for that. And in a sense, that's a certain freedom because the people in the community have more freedom to, I guess, in their mind, feel safer from keeping people out. But... Ooh. It's not good for the general will of the populace in terms of the freedom as a whole. I, I would I would argue. I, I think I would agree with you on that. Um, and I also I think that this is kind of a really good point for the evolution of the libertarian party and how it kind of became a part of the Republican Party now which used to be all about individual freedom. Yeah. But it feels like they're taking away a lot of stuff in the name of freedom. Yeah, like the Tea Party as a libertarian thing is, is anti-women's rights, really. <laughs> like anti-woman and femme people's autonomy in, in a larger sense and also severely respect, restrictive to people with uteruses obviously and I, I think it's just it's just a mark of like freedom is a master signifier right like freedom is is not a word that contains content until it's given content but it's an it's a in the cultural unconscious it's like this allocator that means above all else it means something <laughs> but it's going to mean radically different things based on who you talk to i that's that's why i really like the lyric from me and bobby mcgee Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. And to be fair, yeah, that's kind of uh, is that not the ultimate freedom? Well, 
Okay, so one of the points that Zizek makes, not here but other places, is that when you have the moment of explosive actual revolutionary activity, which he's very coy about, right? Like, and he always is. He's like, no, 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 I'm not encouraging violence. No, why would I do that? No. Yeah, and then the end <laughs> of the first thing we read from Zizek... Is the, the good bullets thing is like, oh. We put them up against the wall and shoot them with a good gun from a good And when bullet. they say they have good intentions, we tell them we put them up against a good wall and we'll shoot them with good guns. Yeah. And it's, they will be good bullets. Which is like, you know, and even then he's coy because that's a, uh, he quotes, he puts a poem he translated up there as the ending. It's not his own, so to speak, words. So he's. He really is, in he's a sense, still he's still sort of faking it, or, you know? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh. And I think this is where Ernesto Laclau is like, well, do you want violent revolution or not? And well, do you want well, do violent revolution? <laughs> yeah, right? And so, but in other great moments of Zizek, he brings up the point that, like, when you have finally the explosion of revolutionary violence in Russia or in, um, like, the French Revolution, if I remember right, he talks about it as a final unleashing of the id. Of the, and, it, you know, it finally unleashes out of this sort of semi-logical place, but not really. It's more that the end, the teleology of it, like the goal is going to be something logical, but the violence itself is more of an explosive irrationality. Mm. And I think that's fine. I... I I don't know then if I have a comparison in America right now for that. I think some of the George Floyd protests. It, it seems like we're always on the brink of being like, how, how much can the wealthy throw it in our face before we do the whole like, wait a minute. Well, I'm never going to become them. What am yeah. I doing? Like, I mean, the thing that I just, I still kind of respect France over this and yeah. wish America would adopt a little bit more of this attitude. In France, they're like, hey, we're thinking about raising the retirement age a couple years. Fires in the streets. <laughs> Hordes of people. Yeah. Like, no, fuck that. Yeah. Here in America... Some of the worst inflation we've seen in a long fucking time. At the same time, all of these corporations are like, look, COVID was real rough. Real rough for people, but man, record-breaking profits for us. Right. Can you, do, do you see how we were able to just jack prices up because people were scared and they bought it and now we can just keep them there? We're making more money than ever. Oh, no, yeah. we can't afford to pay people anymore. That's ridiculous. Right. And we're, we complain about it on the internet, and we're like, well, we've done all we can do. Right, which gets to that certain limit, which is like, it might be true that in your rational, you know, ego and super ego, you're going you're gonna to have a certain degree of... Um, control over that but the desperation manifests in different ways uh, so for example one example i would say of an id breakthrough is january 6th so in january 6th but also where it really is different from desperation on the left versus desperation on the right is that january 6th was an incredibly violent horrible block party 
<laughs> like it was the enthusiasm was there in a, in a really wild sense which does remind me of the accounts of the french revolution and the sort of maniacal aspect of the the march and everything but i do think that that explosion still counts as an it explosion on january 6th i still think that we had a like moment of excess in this country and and like i think that one of the weird things is like you know there's sort of a weird left-wing enjoyment of the law which comes about which is like a new york times they recently put out an article where it was like the dots of all the different people and like only two people were acquitted hundreds pled guilty and like you know dozens were found guilty but i think that I think there's sort of an aspect of negativity in that, a sort of aspect of like, well, do we want to be the party of law and order? Oh, you know, does is the left wing really that? I think is you're, that the you're nailing the like yeah. protest until it upsets things. Yeah. like I'll protest things that don't benefit us, and it's I, I it's a big thing that bought the hypocrisy in American politics is it's is, pretty big. Yeah, it's pretty obvious, but. I think you bring up a really good point that the left is, you know, at a certain time, a lot of them are spouting the uh, defund the police, you know, anti-oppression. Yeah. Meanwhile, I mean, to be fair, I'm also cheering it on like, yeah, Trump's finally getting his because of the law. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> and there is an aspect of like that supposedly untangling hypocrisy, which is the right wing is supposedly like the the force of law as like a repressive state apparatus to keep you in doing your civic duty or whatever. Whereas on the left, that sort of is, it's totally flipped in the last 30 years. Now the left is the family values party in a weird way. And and even though that umbrella is infinitely more inclusive and in a large sense, kinder, there is still a weird aspect of conflict coming from the right. I think there is one as so every once in a while Zizek has a I would say an aspect of psychoanalytic thinking that is borderline a self-help thing but he's a sort of anti-self-help self-help so a lot of the <laughs> self-help books you read which Zizek critiques elsewhere not here basically are like okay here's your your steps for betterment it's very stoic in a sense it's like okay you can make you know Jordan Peterson you can make your bed you can get a job you can find the right glasses i don't know whatever it's you gonna can be clean your kitchen you can jordan. clean your kitchen jordan clean your kitchen jordan clean Dude, your kitchen but, please but zizek self-help inverts that entire structure you know he says blah 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 then i as it were automatically interpret all these changes as the result of my personality not of being tossed around by market forces so the the problem with the peterson self-help stuff is that you know, I would imagine that there was a self-help explosion when the economic crisis happened. The the secret. Yeah, yeah. You remember the secret? Yeah, yeah. And it's when like, that it's, was like a huge fucking thing. Yeah, and it's like, oh well, you know, you're unemployed and there's no work in this town, but like, you made your bed. And <laughs> you, you, know? you got a vision board. You got a vision board. Yeah, you got a vision board, and you got like a and all of that again. Like, I'm not even anti someone doing some of those things I, I i just am anti this sort of false belief you have well it's similar to a prayer wheel i mean i think we should talk about that more but i also think that like when you go in and say like look my struggles are coming from my own 
inability to do something. Like for example, so let's imagine I graduated and my narrative in my brain was I'm not getting a tenure track position right away because I am just not smart enough. Like that's like it happens. Like we've all had that thought, right? But what what helps is when you go, well wait a minute. There were what? Like in any given state, like one or two jobs maybe total. And hundreds of applicants, all of which also have PhDs, and are I mean, also all pretty darn some smart. Some of the you schools know? you were applying to, I was like, "Wow, that's a that's a market." Yeah, because I it seems really vicious on the psyche, because right. especially with what we've kind of been raised to believe with the upper education system here like yeah i did the work and there's no question about it especially any kind of doctorate you know there's no especially i think any doctorate that's a lot of fucking work it's a lot of work like you're qualified to do the thing you went to your doctorate and, for yes, <laughs> yes and you've been conditioned to believe ah yes i did the work now i am a prized possession ready to bestow my wisdom upon the world. Why does no one want my wisdom? Right. Uh, <laughs> I have all the wisdom. Right. And that's and that's all. Like, again, not the way one should think about structure. We make it too much about someone's individuality. Instead we lose of, the plot. We lose the plot. We totally lose the plot of this idea of like, oh, well, they're just like, might not be that job. And that just like... On the one hand, it hurts because you're like, oh, I wanted that job or whatever. But on the other hand, it really does short circuit some of that thinking because then you go, oh, well, I guess it's not there. I'll do something else. And for me, it really did help to go, wait a minute. Do I have time to compose if I actually get the job I supposedly want? (laughs) And it's like, it turns out the answer is probably not, but... What's most helpful, and, and this is where Zizek is a sort of psychoanalyst, right? Like, he's like, you, these self-help books can give you a prescription for life. Um, what Mari Rudy lifts, I forget which theorist came up with it, but it's referenced in Mari Rudy's book, Penis Envy, which is, um, it's called Happiness Scripts. <laughs> and I love those, right? It's like, it's like oh, you know, if you, it is a script for uh, achieving wellness or whatever. And for so Zizek, call Chiron anti-happiness scripts. Yeah, Emil Chiron, who we're also going to read, obviously, <laughs> is about as. I mean, Emil Chiron, for those listening, is a is a great, more aphoristic stylist who incredible he says these writer, amazing quote, incredible like, writer. It's like one. I'm going to butcher this quote, but one of them is like, "One can commit suicide, but one always commits suicide <laughs> too late." <laughs> and I think I think that's similar to Zizek in the sense of like. You know, he always talks about it when he's using psychoanalytic terms of offering freedom from enjoyment. And and the idea that you can, in a sense, you can map that onto the freedom from a happiness script that you've internalized mm. would be one way to read that. In this essay, I think that where it's really important to bring it to the academy is actually the next page. My personal experience is that practically all of the quote, radical, unquote, academics Mm. silently count on the long-term stability of the American capitalist model with a secure tenured position as their ultimate professional goal. And then he goes, a surprising number of them even play on the stock market. 
And like what I would say to that is, yeah. Like, yeah, oh, like th- it's just totally true, right? Like, it's, it's just so, so true. I mean, it's one of my biggest complaints about upper-level education is coming from a jazz program. Yeah. We we are not even a slice in the pie in the budget. We're the crumbs that fall off the pie when you're making the slice. Right. And you look at the money that goes to administration. The and you're like, these... Administration. Sports. You're... Uh, you, sports. Yeah, that's... The football uh, team. I, I... Sorry, I'm going to one-up your administration. Yeah, the you're you're right. You're, you're absolutely right about that. That is... <laughs> uh, I've got... I've got issues with the fact that, like, almost $1,000 of my tuition every semester goes to the athletic program, the biggest money-making part of the school. It brings in more money than anything else. But that does make you wonder if now college athletes have successfully argued that they should get paid, right, for their endorsements. That does make you wonder if... Musicians can get paid in this way. I mean, it's, it, there wouldn't be any money, but it's just funny, you know. It's okay. a funny dichotomy. To be fair, yeah. This is another thing I find a bit astounding. Yeah. Um, and why I one hundred percent argue that college students should be getting paid. Yeah. Uh, or college athletes should be getting paid. Um, every gig I've played for the University of Utah, I got paid for. Right, and we're in the music department. Right, we were we were actually and they still paid their musicians to play gigs. Yeah, but you're gonna tell me not only I mean this they just recently changed this. Yeah, college athletes not only were not paid, they weren't allowed to get sponsorships. Well, they're not. Well, they're not paid. Oh, they're, they're still not paid, but the they point. can they, finally now they can get they can get sponsorships. But this was a big deal with the um, the video games, all of the oh, yeah. like the NCAA games. They put these college athletes on the covers all over in the games. Nothing. They didn't get a penny of it. None of it. All of it goes to the school. Right. It all goes to the fucking school. I know. Okay. Well, on that note, by the way, slightly different than money, but when I went to when I started my PhD, you know, you fill out these forms and everything. And one of the forms in the small print is like, look, we sanction everything you publish. We, we not like give permission, but we own you a little bit. Like you have to technically go through, this is not very much enforced, but like, for example, if I had a book deal while I was a student at the U, there might've been like a conflict where it would have been, Oh, that has to be published with, the University of Utah logo. Very interesting and strange requirements that, now that I'm out, seem more strange than when I was in. Um, I think that, like, getting out of the academy now, because I graduated this past year, and now that I'm out and working, uh, I work at a bookstore, um, and I teach nonprofit music. So, like, I went the total other way, where I, t- I still teach music, but I teach, like, a nonprofit for underprivileged kids i am more willing now to engage in more radical change than i would have ever been at the academy 
there's a structural thing there, right? It's like the, well, the problem of the, the wall in front of you goes away when you have a different symbolic positioning, right? And so that problem outside of the academy seems so much more real than when I was in it. It's just... It's kind of bizarre because, like, for a period, wasn't, like, universities kind of the center for radical political movements? The right still thinks it supposedly is, right? Like, the, Ugh, the you know, like, all just... these campus liberals or whatever. Whereas, like, it's not... I still think it can be, but I think that... I wish it was more that yeah. way, but it... I like I've seen a couple protests at school and it felt performative. Like once we were done with the cameras and everything, we just kind of clear out and go back about our daily lives and it Yeah. I I don't know. I I think he's kind of right about the like I'll make the statement because it gives me more gain in the capitalist system yeah instead of actually upsetting the capitalist system well and i think i think that actually leads to the next points he makes which are all about the notion of fantasy you know there's the racist fantasy there's the american dream as fantasy um but the way he interrogates some of the fantasies that are alive today is really funny because he references the book the worst case scenario uh survival oh God, book and so the idea is that like look i'm i i don't know how to fight a bear i'm gonna call someone or run away or and i'm not gonna be in a place with i mean i'm in utah so there's more bears than when i was in michigan but the idea is of course it's a fantasy of in a sense ego exception that like you can survive the apocalypse he doesn't reference this but i think he does later but we should reference it Doomsday cults. Doom not cults. Sorry. Doomsday. That's preppers. exactly Doomsday what I thought. Okay. Yeah. Doomsday this preppers. one struck a little close to home for someone who is just full of useless information. Yeah. Yeah. Just. You know, did. There's this period as a kid when you know, like I just loved learning, and that kind of bred later on in this weird period of just like I'll soak up every random fact I can. Just in case it'll make me useful at a certain point. Yeah. Before you realize, like, well, I will never need this information. I had, so we had, a, we have a similar brain in this way. As a kid, I had a drawer in my desk that was the fact drawer. So as a fourth grader, I was really obsessed with how many phobias there were. So I found a list that was the whole list of every phobia that exists. And some of them are really funny. Like one of them is a fear of getting an erection. And another fear is a fear of what, losing an erection. What is the word for those? I don't. We'll have to look it up later. But and I, and I remember even as a young kid being like, <laughs> "Hope you don't have both: fear of losing or gaining an erection." <laughs> that, that's an anxiety disorder. That is terrifying. Yeah, but but like the you know and I had like the dinosaurs. It was all the facts, and you had the dinosaur handbook. But I think that like that. Well, also, you see, if you ever encounter a T Rex, you just need to stay still. No, 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 that's, that's old facts They're, about non-existent. Non I know, non it's, it's a yeah. total bullshit fact because yeah, we yeah. don't know anything about dinosaurs. But I think, I think what we're articulating here is that, that, that those motions, in a sense, are also tied up in whatever our fantasy structure is. 
right? Like that would be like, oh, this will be useful someday, or oh, I could I could yep. use that. Which Fun is more fact, like information ever, uh, hoarding than it is anything else. If you're ever in tiger territory, you yeah. just need a mask that you can wear on the back of your head. That way, the tiger won't attack you from behind. <laughs> oh, yeah. You can take that one home with you, just in case you're. <laughs> I'll put it in my ever encountering <laughs> tiger infested areas. It'll be like, a, I'll encounter a tiger and I'll just be like, the last of, or Triscodecophobia is the fear of the number 13. And I'm like, fuck, it's the wrong thing! No, no, that's not the one! <laughs> that's not, I'm useless in this world! No, but I think, I think it, like, that fantasy is a, is a fantasy that is related to being a teacher. Right? You know, it's an anxiety, there's an anxiety of not knowing the answer, and you're gonna, you, you know what I mean? Like, I think that when you let it, but paradoxically, it's more helpful to students when you don't know. Right? Like, it's more like if a student comes to you and is like, oh my god, like, what is the common view of ternary form in 1817? First of all, I'd be like, you're an amazing student. But second of all, I'd be like, well, in that year, I guess I'm not exactly sure, but I can give you the resources. And it's much more important to defeat that fantasy to be a facilitator than it ever is to just be like, oh, yes, in the year 1817, ah, this was the heyday of Beethoven's moving towards his late period. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But, like, for, I, yeah. I've got a really good example of this yeah. that I think is a bit of a capitalistic fantasy is the doomsday bunker team building exercise thing with like, if you were at the end of the world and there's just a handful of you left in a bunker, how are you going to be useful and not get eaten kind of a thing? When the, and, and the truth of that, of course, is... You can't possibly know that. <laughs> you can't. You're probably dead. I mean, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> for like going like super basic. Mm-hmm. I know how to play music, and I understand some music theory. It's not going to keep you alive, but I think I could make a pretty good argument. That, like, hey, who else is going to provide entertainment? Y'all got a radio? Fuck no, you don't. I'm the only person that understands rhythm here. But that's not going to help you survive outside of your mental well-being. Or even worse, what if you get tribes and then you played the wrong guitar song to the people you interrupt? And they're like, oh, that was the wrong song. That's the other song. We kill them. Who knows what the fuck happens at this point? This is also another reason I like Philip K. Dick. Right. Like post-apocalyptic stuff because it's a little more chaotic and less like, we'd be the same people just a little bit neurotic when the world ended and i don't know if that'd be the case yeah i'm not sure i mean and and zizek references this a lot he also references the perfect storm like what's what's the enjoyment of watching the movie the perfect storm or castaway and and a castaway actually i think is less fantasy involved i think the perfect storm is like pretty great as an example because it's like this idea that in these scenarios you are going to know something that you know you won't know till you're there. Like, Ooh. you're not going to know how you act in a scenario like that. You just can't know that about yourself unless you've been in those scenarios. And since I haven't, I just have to be comfortable with the idea that, yeah, I'm probably dead. That's so why I like the qualifier of, I'd like to think I'd do this. That reminds <laughs> me, so my, my friend, the philosopher, John James, they said once, I love the idea of anarchy, but I don't think I would do well. Oh, you're right. Oh my God, that's <laughs> and that's great. It's reading my mind because yeah, it sounds great, but you know, I don't. I don't think I'd do great. 
I might yeah. die with being, you know, while I'm being eaten, be like, look, I think it's great that you guys are just getting it. You are giving no grounds to your desire, and I, I respect that as, <laughs> as they pull my intestines out. Pull my intestines out. out. You so, guys get it. So I think for our last, like, 15 minutes here, I think we should talk about the good and the bad of Zizek's view of sexual politics. So can I start with the good? Because, like, I want to rip on this guy a lot, but I want to give him something first. He is just right about gay, usually men, in under fascism and other totalitarian or repressive scenarios. So It's one of those, I don't understand how you can, like, get these concepts... Well, like, but like then so the other idea are just like so for for like homosexuality for it to function in a totalitarian system, he says, in order to function as the support of a totalitarian community, homosexuality has to remain a publicly disavowed, dirty secret shared by those who are in. And I, I just think he's right. I think that's I think that's I, just right. I, I don't have an even critique on no, it. I think, it's a good I, point. I think that kind of really slapped. Catholic Church is like that. Um, I will mention, I think that uh, the senator or representative aides oh, who are fucking really yeah. just fucking skewed this concept so aggressively. Well, they were liberal. D Getting back to what we started with, it's all a fashion show there, but I think that Fair they <laughs> hit the nail on the head of, like, there are a lot of, I mean, how many aggressively Republican homophobic senators got busted with male escorts exactly. or all this other stuff? Exactly, it's, and it's, it's known, but it only functions if it's not brought to the light. Yes! But it functions perfectly well. I mean, it functions terribly because these people are miserable. But oh, it functions it real. Just... It functions ideologically if it's below the surface. Okay, so that's that's the good side, right? Like, that's like that's just the side look, I'm like, Lindsey yeah, Graham, that's great. It's okay. You yeah. can suck a dick. It's fine. It'll be okay. You don't need to spend your whole life just angrily fighting your feelings. And ruining everybody's lives around you. Yeah, or um, another example of this is like with... Um, so there's this great band called the Leuven Brothers. They existed like 50 years ago. And they wrote these like super banger gospel Christian rock. Not Christian rock, but like it was like more little country elements. And they had great close harmony vocals. And it was like, they had songs like I Love the Christian Life, you know. There's a higher power when Satan... Oh, dude, yes, I have power. heard these. Yeah, they're great. But one of them, at least, was like a raging alcoholic cheater. <laughs> you know, it's like totally stepping... And I think this point, Zizek's right, but I don't... I think it's almost a truism. Like, I think a lot of the other stuff in this essay is like is like interesting ideologically to look at and is, is operative. And I think a lot... Of, it, he's in a community of theorists that all make similar points. It's not like him and Mari Rudy on some of these points are going to um, disagree. I just, I just think that this last one might be so settled that it's sort of a truism. <laughs> I mean, we kind of just like are like, well, yeah, that's just the way also, that goes. Also, reading when did he wrote this? This has got to be like twenty years old at this point. 
right? Yeah, I think the final essay came about in the early 2000s. I think it was originally published in, like, the late 90s. So, you know, it's the same. It's, <laughs> no, I mean, there are certain things in this where I'm like, yeah, you were definitely right about that one. Because I don't think even this, like, think about when this came out, the internet is still gaining ground. We did yeah. not have the access to information on these people like we used to. So I think it is, uh, well, I think I got to give him credit. He definitely credit. nailed something Dude. there that we, it's now yeah. become a truism. It's like, a truism, but, but the moment it becomes a truism to critique my earlier point, don't you think that Lauren Boebert represents a development of enjoyment? Like, like Lauren Boebert goes and like does sex stuff in a theater and it's kind of like it's not it's not even the truism anymore it's it's that the right wing is reclaiming obscene enjoyment in public you know that's part of january 6th is it's if a public Lord spectacle Boba was left wing and that same thing went down and they made the extremist left wing thing that like oh we're just making too much of a taboo out of sex and this is oppression and everything and right like we're pro you know we're the narrative would have been completely different yeah, but yeah, totally. it's explosive because it's a person who is uh, publicly speaking out against this kind of stuff. But they're also the group of people that I feel are more chaotic. Well, I just think they're more open about their sense of... In I, I think that the obscene underbelly of Reagan enjoyment is what explodes out now. Like it's always it's like so the truism of the past is now enjoyment in public, and I would say that in terms of social norms, that also is now more active in the moderate left. The idea that there's de we have decorum here, that that is a Democrat saying that. <laughs> like oh if you God. just have the sentence, this is a place of order and decorum, and we have certain like you know, no one would say it this way, but like we have certain activities that are permitted and others aren't. Like that's that's a Democrat, whereas like on the right, and and I'm I'm ruling in Romney, <laughs> we're taking him on the on the moderate side because that was where you know his. Sorry, his, Romney, your party betrayed you. They've become so far right. You're a liberal now. You don't have a choice. You don't have matter. a choice in the matter. You have a minuscule of respect for human life. You're you're a lefty now. Yeah, yeah, that counts as trying to uphold some degree of normalcy. But but on the flip side, like when we talk about um, like these types of enjoyment and coming out and exploding and erupting, the philosopher Todd McGowan made a great point. Why aren't there the deplorables on the left? And that cuts through what we're talking about, right? Like, that's the real point, is, like, you have Unicorn Riot, the LGBT pro-gun, you know, armed at events to yeah, prevent... Like the left, mm -hmm. the deplorables, like, any deplorable within the left, they are, like, eliminated. Think about the, uh, the comedian that, um... Oh, God, what is his name? It starts with an F. Frank... Frank, Frank, Frankel, Franco. Um, like, 
spent his life as a comedian, became a politician later on, kind of got like surprise senator seat. And then there's Al Franken. This big... Al Franken. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Look at what happened to him. Because during even once the actual like story of where the picture came from. Yeah. And that it was all a stage and he joke and everything. Yeah. They still pushed him the fuck out and got him to retire. Right away. Meanwhile, there is recorded footage or recorded audio of Donald Trump saying, oh yeah, when you're rich, you can do whatever you want. You can grab him by the pussy. Before he was elected president. And that proves... The point we're kind of talking about here, right? Which is that that type of obscene enjoyment is on the right. Now, for this one, it's related to sexual harassment. And I think that where a politics on the left that would be the deplorables wouldn't, it wouldn't be that. It would be the unicorn, right? The LGBT group that is armed and, you know, blocks right wing weirdos from disrupting library events, right? Yeah. I also think that Noam Chomsky should be labeled as a deplorable sometimes. <laughs> I mean, I disagree with a lot of his points, but like at the same point, there is this idea of like, just, just you have to, you have to exit the centrist liberal sphere for you to ever be able to make a more radical point of like, like why, I don't know why we have billionaires. And then the moderate laughs like, ha ha. But 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 why do we have billionaires? It's, it's, it's the Airbud like analogy. Yeah. The left is the coach desperately gripping the rule book saying a dog can't play basketball while that golden retriever is just fucking dunking on the team and everyone cheers. Yeah. That's fun. Okay, we put it off. We have to now talk about the ending of this essay. So, for those of you guys who are reading this essay with us, it goes and it goes and it's fine and it's, it's a classic Zizek. Um, anyone who's read more than one thing of Zizek's will know that he repeats himself more often than he has a new idea. Um, the new idea came from the first time he said it somewhere. But, you know, he's a, he's a man of refrains, right? He's a man of maxims and refrains. But... He gets to the end and oh, the record scratch. Record scratch. He suddenly starts talking theory. about the changing view of <clears throat> pedophilia. <clears throat> so he references this guy, Daniel Cohn Bendit, who was a teacher for preschool or mm. kindergarten, and talks about letting the kids basically fondle him and him molest them. And it was framed at the time as being revolutionary politics in terms of sexual revolution. And Zizek makes the point. Today, that would be condemned as evil. I think he says, after all, child sexual harassment is one of the notions of evil today. And then he ends it with this, I'm, I think it's kind of a dumpster fire, but he says, without directly taking sides in this debate, one should read it as a sign of the change in our mores from the utopian energies of the 60s to the contemporary stale political correctness. And here's the weird part in which every authentic encounter with another human being is denounced as a victimizing experience. So why, why would, okay, so if, if we're doing that, why is he considering the 60s fondling kids thing more authentic? Like that's supposedly more authentic, I guess? Look, I, <laughs> I, I can admit that I don't have half the intelligence of this man. I do not have the genius of Zizek. But 
I think he's fucking wrong. Yes. Here. Like that just Yes. Across the board. No. Yeah. No. Like the especially this example, I it I've never been so uncomfortable reading theory stuff in this way. Like, a lot of theory makes me uncomfortable in a way that restructures the way I think, and I come out later like, oh, yeah, I'll I'll restructure. This was one that I was like, I feel deeply disturbed by this line of logic, because I... I don't accept the line of logic. I don't. Doesn't it? But the line of logic hinges on the idea that Daniel Cohn Bendit's original account was closer to authenticity. And I what I would say is why would we triumph one over the other? Like and I think and and I I made this point before to Preston we started the podcast is that in the era of me too and in the era of women's liberation and LGBT liberation the idea of consent really throws a sort of wrench into what Zizek's saying because what Zizek is thinking about is liberation means yes. Always. Everyone now has sex. It means yes. And what it actually means to me in a parts I'm gonna I'm gonna articulate for my beliefs is that liberation means the ability to say no. Yes. It means the ability and the the ability to to not have to engage. I mean, which is a Zizekian point, isn't it? I How did, he says stuff like, "I prefer so the, not to." This whole, I would like this whole episode when we right. talk about this performative nature of things, this prayer wheel of stuff. I I think that there has been a major like patriarchy sense of like pressuring women into situations that they regret later. And yeah. we passed that off as like, oh, they, uh, they weren't saying no at the time, even though I was really aggressive. Yeah. And they kind of said no, but they didn't, like, push me off or anything. Or I know what they really were thinking. Yes! Mm-hmm. I... And, it, and it's, isn't it forward think Because also, like, like it, make it about you. Someone comes on to you. Uh, and and you're, you're a man, but, but I think women's rights are also what engenders us to say no. It's 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 it not breaks this, the structure for everyone. It's not just this yes to every random weirdo with a penis. <laughs> like and I don't I, know what we're doing here, you know? <laughs> it's like and, and I, I think it makes him laughably cancelable. Cancelable. In the in, in the cancelable oh. sense of like he has another quote at one point where he says and this is this is betrays some of Zizek's later transphobic thinking and other thoughts where I'm just like, no, this doesn't follow from your original thoughts. Like, so he says, what are we doing here? So like, for example, he says transgenderism in one quote, which by the way, transgenderism, the way of phrasing that is already, it's already a right wing made up nonsense. But when he says transgenderism is incompatible with Freud, my first thought is, Aren't you a Lacanian? Well, yeah, <laughs> first, aren't you a Lacanian? But also, more importantly, the spirit of Freud 
would be very interested in hearing people's accounts of their gender identity. I feel like Freud is turning in his grave that he's not here to talk to people in this era with this stuff. Yeah, because it's like, Freud changed his mind in significant ways at several points in his life. In my mind, when we think about a theorist, we have to take a theorist in spirit. Like, Kant was a racist. I mean, I mean, a lot of these people are terrible on their ethics. Like, a lot of, you know. But the spirit of that thinking is going to lead you to a different place than just taking someone as doctrine. I mean, come on. I, I, <laughs> I feel like we have literally <laughs> talked about this exact same thing when we first did Freud on the podcast. Was the, oh my god, he is so wrong on so many of these things, but shit the avenue of thinking like we can't ignore the How revolutionary fact that, yes the fact that he's even thinking about this exactly he's fucking wrong but at least he like started the path and it and look at the life of the concept of fetishism it changes and it grows and in the spirit of in this own essay the, the last part of it is on fetishism and you're like wait that's that's not the definition we covered a couple weeks ago. So if that's not the definition, then why are we beholden to the past in that way? I mean, there's a difference between having a knowledge of Freud and teaching the essay as he would, as he wrote it and teaching a class so they understand what Freud believed and articulating our own inspiration beliefs and what we take from things i mean i i, I don't think i, I mean and i really i really you know disappointed when Zizek does this because it's it's just out of character it's 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 and i also think that he's been taken to task but he's so much in his own way he's kind of a pervert but like he's also able to dodge criticism in this way where he's such a hegelian back and forth dialectic it's like oh well i'm not critiquing the facts i'm just critiquing the ideological structure and i think that's that's fine and true for the whole first part of the essay, but then when it gets to the end, I'm like, well, wait a minute, even in keeping with just the ideological critique, you don't follow through on your own logic. Instead, you leave it... He almost leaves it at a, at a utopian past was better point, right? Like, I don't even think he believes that. <laughs> I don't, and I don't know, like, there's... I, I think that there's this fantasization about, like, the 60s and 70s free love movement. Yeah. Because you know what there was a lot of at a lot of these music festivals that were all about freedom and free love? A shit ton of sexual assault. A lot of violence. Like, they, they, we ignore these mm -hmm. dark parts of this stuff. And, like, reading this, like, like, yeah, don't you think maybe we took the good parts from it? Like what you mentioned at the beginning, how we don't ignore the past completely. Yes. We like use that's the, the past. problem with post, you know, post-humanism is that we're completely dismantling the structures, which isn't necessarily productive. But um, it's about keeping the good parts. So maybe the progress towards getting rid of the taboo around sex, good. Fucking everything, bad. Yeah. I like I just without directly taking sides in this debate bothers me so much. Can't, I think it's pretty easy to take a direct side on this. I don't have a fucking problem with it. 
No! Yeah. I mean, and I think that's where... He, he kind of comes across as wanting... He, it's like he wants a certain fan... It's, it's honestly almost like he's laying some parts of his fantasy bear for us in a fetishistic way. So, like, the fe- the the pervert stages the stages the scene for the enjoyment of the big other. And when I was reading this, when I felt uncomfortable, was I felt staged. Like, I felt like I was reading the juicy bits of Zizek's unconscious staged for me. I hated it. <laughs> hated it. I hated it. It's like someone who really likes magnets is going to make an essay about guitars eventually make about magnets but they're also going to make an essay about windows into something about magnets <laughs> and i think I i'm ju- gonna leave it at that i i, I really wish this would have gone on a little longer because we get like this concept that we just dived into is like yeah. the last two and a half pages of this whole essay and then he ends you're like what no, there. We need to be diving into this more. Could you explain a bit more of this? Yeah, exactly. And like, I diving into the whole pervert chaos kind of person. I can see the connection with um. With earlier on in the essay, with how like we're willing to put up with protest until it upsets the norm. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I think that as someone who is all for like exploring things and getting rid of these constraints, yeah, that's a big no for me. It's a big fucking no. Isn't it sort of just a deontological? So when I say deontological no, isn't it like a a priori duty no? Like, like no. <laughs> like I, I just do. We. It took us. Like two thousand years of civilization before we're like, I don't know. Maybe this is gross, and we're still fighting it. No, it's fucking gross. Yeah. It 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 is so obviously gross. I don't need to be told that it's gross. Yeah. It's gross. It it is so unsettling. I I don't well, know. And the, then the he last says, part of that bothered me well, so much. Well, and then he sets it up saying, um. It is easy to be radical apropos of gay marriage, incest, etc. Okay, I don't know if I put those together. However, what about child sex and torture? On what grounds are we justified in opposing them without having recourse to the legal fiction of the adult autonomous subject responsible for his or her acts? Okay, so the problem, I have a problem with that, which is that first of all, it's like, I know you're going to make this really easy argument against um, pedophilia. Don't make that argument. And if you don't make that argument, then suddenly it makes sense. And you're like, well, I luckily I was actually going to make that argument. Well, funny thing <laughs> is, it's argument. an obvious argument, and I don't think that that's... I wish he interrogated what was wrong with that argument more. Like, the idea that it is a legal fiction is true in the sense of borderline cases. Like, okay, so like, like one example of why it's a legal fiction, and I would give him that, but it does, it, it's still useful. Like, the idea that, okay, uh, a 17-year-old boy who has sex with a 19-year-old girl... You know, if you don't have grace laws, then you're... Oh, the idea is then that the 19-year-old has raped the 17-year-old. Um, and that's obviously false. But the if, if it's two consenting people in that way, 
but that's not he's not really engaging with the argument that I wanted him to engage with even though it's sort of the the traditional one I think I don't even go further I think you could make lots of arguments against um child sex without referencing the law like I think you could reference brain development or like like the idea wouldn't you easily make the idea that like an adult just has so much control one it's it's one word that it comes down to that he doesn't mention at all in this last section yeah consent yeah it's it all kind of boils down to that word i don't believe a child can consent it it's kind of a thing that bothers me about you know the church that they uh, the lds church they're like look we're not like those other Christian religions. We don't just baptize you as a baby. We wait until you're old enough to be accountable for that decision. Eight years old. Right. But, <laughs> right. And like, and I get that we're, 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 he's trying to erase this side of like, like I think, I think that Zizek would have a more of a view of subjectivity that's slightly more, I mean, obviously it's a very complicated view of subjectivity, but like in this regard, I think that I want to take the challenge and we're running out of time for this one, but maybe in the future ones of accepting the challenge that he sets up of without this argument, how could you argue against it? I, I think, I think I can <laughs> because I think consent. If he had chose a different subject, I think it'd be easier. He really went for one that I'm like, I, I don't know, man. He, even if I could see what you're trying to do with the thought processes here, yeah. can can we not do it centered around th this? I would actually be more interested in centering it around incest because I guess personally, I don't really care if cousins have sex. Like, I think there's issues that make people feel gross about it. But yeah, if like people are of the age and willing to consent, like, oh yeah, I don't really, I mean, it's gross, but I, I find care that about it. vastly more interesting because at a certain point, incest had to have happened it's an inherent part of christian doctrine also certain parts of um uh you know monarchies kind of yes <laughs> i find that vastly more interesting than child rape i guess and also and like what, can, what it serves no purpose ever is does it have anything to do with his notion of radical politics I'm having trouble with that link. I, I mean, I guess he's making it about political correctness, but, like, I guess I'm not... So when I think of political correctness, I think of, like, microaggressions. Um, you know, Frank, you know... Cultural appropriation. You're not allowed to wear that... Yeah. ...because you have no relation to that community. Which is a deep and fascinating concept, but, like, it's also not the same thing i mean i kind of do wonder like like what if what if instead of it being about sex and i know it's really important what if he was like what if it was like a more ridiculous example of like i have a right to poke you with a needle you know like like you know like he kind of is like framing it as this balanced thing between that makes me adults. uncomfortable but not in the same way and i think that being poked by a needle would have spawned a far more productive line of thinking and argument than like, all right, you guys, 
child sex. No, 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 no. Also, and then he just ends the essay. And then it's just over. We're not over. We're not talking about, like, because I was like, okay, is he going to talk about, like, Brave New World? Or, like, other things, like, like in that way. And I was like, oh, no, we're, we're just, we're just done. Okay. It's exactly what I thought. Not Brave New World, but Huxley's other, The Island. Yeah. Because it, he toys with this idea of, like, sexual exploration, but it's between kids of the same age. And not like in a region of development. Yes, yeah. not an adult and a child. Ugh. I don't know, and it's also like, I'm gonna make, I guess in my arguments, I know I'm we're making recourse to things he's like, ignore the left hand, let's now just talk about the right hand. And it's like, well, no, I'm gonna make some arguments with the left hand too. <laughs> so, but in any event, I think... I think for now that's what I all I have to say. But next week we're gonna do another Zizek essay. We're gonna do two back to back, because I Preston chose this one and it was a fantastic choice. I mean the ending was insane, but I couldn't have known that from the beginning. But this next one I think will be a a different side of Zizek as well that we'll piece together. I I think it'd be a good call. I. I just, I thoroughly enjoy reading him. He was like one of my first, oh shit. Yeah. I don't have to keep rereading these things. Like that mm-hmm. actually clicks. The, he yeah. knows the like way to get these ideas in. And the fucking hard right at the end on this one was a little unsettling. Yeah. I, I guess I got into this stuff to get unsettled just not like that <laughs> not you know Willem Dafoe in Antichrist unsettled <laughs> yeah. I'd prefer a little bit more Ari Asner unsettled if you will Yeah, I find it to be a little more productive for my thought process yeah <laughs> no I think and I think that's a I think that's a good place thank you Preston for joining for joining me and talking about Zizek. No, Thanks for the thank choice. Thank you. That was fun. It was, it was good. We uh, The end definitely stretched there a lot. Oh, it did. Farther. I, we were just putting that off there. We were putting it, it off not as much as we could. <laughs> oh, man. Well, anyway, thank you all for listening. Until next time. <laughs>